Hello and welcome to the Film Pulse Podcast. This is episode number 471. My name's Adam Patterson. With me today, we've got Kevin Rakestraw. Hey, Kevin. Hey. This week on the show, we'll be taking a look at Albert Burney's Eyeballs in the Darkness, which is the Tux and Fanny sequel. We also will be going over some of what we've been watching on the watch list and new releases in theaters, VOD, and Blu-ray. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Please remember to review us on iTunes if you get a moment. Do say by the 90s should be dropping very soon. I'm in the editing process. Again, uh, this month we're doing 90s dog movies. And, uh, you know, it was, it was fun to go back and revisit some of these dog movies. But uh, they were not very good. Dog movies mm-hmm. in the 90s, not very good. Although I will say, one of the movies that we cover is Bingo. And Bingo is absolutely insane. Like, that movie is nuts. And I didn't realize it when I was when I was very young when that when it came out. But man, that movie is bonkers. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Let's go ahead and get into Eyeballs in the Darkness. As I mentioned, this is written and directed by Albert Burney. No plot synopsis, just that it's the sequel to Tux and Fanny. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. Do you want more Tux and Fanny? If so, boom, here you go. That that is. Yes, that is all you really need to know, I guess. Uh, Kevin, we'll start with you. What were your initial impressions of Eyeballs in the Darkness? Well, just to give you a heads up, I wanted more Tux and Fanny, so I got what I wanted, and it was great. That's the thing, is if you like Tux and Fanny, if you're familiar with the like the short videos or the, or the, the first movie, then and you like it, then you'll like this. If you don't like Tux and Fanny, if the style isn't your thing then you're not going to like this simple, simple as that. Yep. This is more of the same. Uh, I think that this one more so than the others is like far to me leans on the darker side of things, but like in a very existential way, like this one seems to be all about Tux and Fanny dealing with death and, and sort of, understanding and accepting like the circle of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's, uh, yeah, it's great. You know, it's, it's, I think that it's more concise than the, than the last Tux and Fanny movie where, whereas the, the last Tux and Fanny movie was felt almost like a collection of the shorts, like kind of thrown together, not thrown mm-hmm. together, but, you know, pieced yeah. together. Uh, whereas this one feels like a, a larger sort of narrative has a, has a larger narrative through line where yeah. the, where it's not like a series of little misadventures, but it's like kind of one big story. Yeah. I think it, with the first one, you know, it pretty much was that it was just as if all these little short films and then just kind of stitched them all together. It's far more meandering, a lot more random stuff happening. This one, it felt like it's still that, like it's still the little videos stitched together, but it seems like the videos were like laid out mm-hmm. with like a through line and it is far more somber. There's still some comedy in there, of course, but it definitely feels a lot more, a lot darker. Like you said, it's a lot more bittersweet. Yeah. And that's, the, I think bittersweet is a good way to describe it in that, in in some ways it's kind of a death positive movie where 
it looks at the sort of sad elements of loss, but it also, you know, celebrates life. And in, even though it's, it's very melancholy in some areas, I think that overall it's still a, a very warm and, and kind of positive uh, story. And yeah, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. It, it has all the same stuff, all the same elements that you would expect from a Tux and Fanny story where there's, you know, uh, a mixture of all different types of animation in here. I mean, the standard kind of 8-bit pixel animation, and then you have, there's like CG, there's hand-drawn, there's live action, there's stop motion. I mean, literally every type of animation, I think, is being employed here. Much like the other the other stories, and it's uh, you know it it aids it a lot in in its visual style, and you know it's weird, it's absurd at times, but I think that it all it it doesn't go, it never goes overboard. Like like Bernie always knows how to strike that balance between absurdity and like just kind of boring nonsensical yeah. scenes that don't feel necessary. Like he, he always knows how to walk that line very closely. Yeah. It doesn't seem like he does have a, like a really good understanding of like timing. We're like, Oh, this is a good time for a little absurd detour for, you know, like a minute or so. And then we'll get back to, to the, the standard story, yeah. you know, it's never like this, just like everything goes off the rails and it's just ridiculous for the sake of being ridiculous. Yeah. And he always, he always right when, at least when I'm watching either the, the, the first movie did this t- to me as well, right. When like I started get, get to get to the edge of being like frustrated, he would pull back and, and do something to, to, to like bring me back off the edge and, and, pull me back into it. Um, and, and I think he just, he also strikes a really good balance between the, the comedic absurdity moments and like the, the darker, more serious, sad moments. Yeah. Like he, he does a good job of keeping that evenly paced as well, where it's never, you're never overwhelmed with like the grief of this movie. Uh, because he, there's always something kind of goofy or fun that will will follow up, you know, a more sad moment. But I will say, like, I was surprised. I did not really think that this was going to take a more serious route. But, like, there's some really genuinely, like, pretty heavy moments in this. I mean, especially when they translate the like the diary Mm -hmm. and they're going through. And so just to give some backstory, since the synopsis doesn't (laughs) say anything, uh, Tux and Fanny are looking for a new house, their house. I think, was it in the first movie that their house like burnt down or something? Yeah. I can't remember exactly what happened to it. So yeah, I think their house burnt down or, but they just end up without a home. Yeah. So this movie picks, picks up with them out searching for a home and uh meanwhile is it fanny i always get them mixed up fanny's the one with the the injury yeah the venom in the leg yeah so fanny sustains a a bug bite that's like 
gets massively infected. And so she's like incapacitated and they end up finding this house that seems to be abandoned. And as they're searching through the house, they start to find remnants of the previous owners. And along with that is this like really terribly sad story about the family that lived there before. And then along with that is the ghost of one of them who inhabits the house. And it's just a great, it's just a great story. Really liked where it went. I liked the, uh, was it, was the, the, the ladybug's name Pasha or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pasha that, that would bite, <laughs> that would bite Fanny's brain and cause her to change her perspective and every time the ladybug bit her brain, it it changed the animation style. A lot of this felt like a video game, and and that, that not just because like it looks like a video game, but the the way that these movies are structured almost feels like a video game where there's an overarching goal, and then there's like side quests, and along the way they meet different like NPCs for a lack of a better term, and then like they will collect items and then use those items to get further. Yeah. It's always these, and it's all these like little puzzles mm-hmm. where like, Oh, it's a frog on a tin can. And then come upon a cow. Okay. Let's use the frog and the tin can. Yeah. Which is great because um, Albert Bernie did create a Tux and Fanny video game, which was like surprisingly, really good i mean i when i say surprisingly i I don't mean that is like in like a condescending way or anything it's just that when that when that game came out it was on itch.io and i expected it to just be this like little you know kind of forgettable small experience like a little interactive tux and fanny short but it's like a decently long game and that and the game also employs different animation styles too like there's claymation in it and and stuff like that and the game is like a sort of like a point and click adventure game so it plays out similarly to the the movies and the shorts as well and you can switch back and forth between Tux and Fanny but then there's also additional characters that you can play as you can play as a cat or a flea and it it's a really really good game so and it's on steam and uh the nintendo switch now incredible like it's just incredible that there's this expanded tux and fanny universe you know what's crazy though uh i was i was trying to find out more information about this movie the sequel there's no tux and fanny wikipedia like i feel like by yeah, this point I- yeah. By this Come point, on. I feel like there should be a Tux and Fanny Wikipedia page. They've done so much. Yeah. And like it's definitely growing in popularity, I think. Like I think the game was I think that that exposed a lot of people to Tux the the Tux and Fanny universe. I wonder if it's the 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 Russian aspect of it. That keeps people away. It could be. It could be. If you're not familiar, the the movie's in Russian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, this time around he added French. 
Oh yeah, yeah. The the house that they go that they find apparently that family was French, so everything in the house is French. So it's, yeah, love the animation. Dan Deacon did at least part of the score, and I think he just did the one song. Oh, did he? Like the ladybug, like mm-hmm. fever dream for all eternity. Which I loved that song, by the way. Uh, the whole- I love the uh, gathering ghosts song for the game like i couldn't stop listening to that <laughs> the, the I whole just kept reminded every time he would play that little computer game which he got addicted to <laughs> and then when the battery ran out he figured out that he could instead of using a regular battery used a potato <laughs> the classic potato energy um yeah i loved all the music the all the music was great as usual loved the sound effects too i don't know like I don't know how to describe the sound effects, but it's like something that a lot of us heard before. I, I don't know how to fully articulate the sound effects in in this. It's just, it's series. like a it's like an eight bit thump. Yeah, but I love it. Yeah, it's perfect. It's just perfect. And it, I, I like you. I was really surprised by this because up until like when they get to the house and he gets addicted to gathering ghosts and stuff, everything's kind of like it's somewhat silly. And, you know, a ghost appears. And you're like, oh, shit, this is going to be a haunted house movie. This is going to be great. But then from that point on, it just got super dark and sad. But also, like, reaffirming in ways. But it just, it took this, the turn that it took, I, I don't think I was quite ready for it. Yeah, you didn't expect to to see a, a Tux and Fanny movie where the whole, pretty much the whole movie, they're just grappling with the concept of death. Yeah, and they, especially when they got the VHS tape out. Oh my god, like, dude! It's like, yeah. why is this so sad? It was why? so brutal. <laughs> yeah, and like the music, just it, everything made everything just so much sadder. I just and I, another thing that I I feel like, and I'm almost sure that he did more so in this movie than the first one is. There's a lot more like quiet, like nothing happening moments in this one. Mm. Something in particular that I'm thinking of is when Fanny is translating the journal and they're just like sitting there just mm-hmm. for, it's just, you just hear like birds chirping and stuff. And it's just like, it's an 8-bit animation doing like slow cinema tactics. This is, yeah. it's just so bizarre. So many things about this. Yeah. I think that that's, that's one of the things that makes this series just so special is that, you know, you have this really unique animation. You have these very likable, endearing characters. There's this, this cuteness to it. There's this sweetness to it. You know, they're, they're just so innocent. And I think that that's one of the things that, that makes them inherently likable, but then they're also dealing with these like really heavy, you know, life, the concepts of life. And I think, I don't know. I just, I think that Aberberry is such a, such a remarkable director to be able to constantly craft these really incredible stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's just also just the level of creativity here. Holy crap. Like, yeah, but that's the thing that always gets me. It's just, it seems like an endless supply of creativity on his end. Just the mixture of all the, all the different styles 
but to be able to couple that with stories mm. too. Yeah, it's just, not it's not just pointless. Like it all it all fits together. It doesn't feel unnecessary to the plot. And this one this one was I don't know how long the first one was, but I was kind of impressed with the length. The first one was like 80 minutes or somewhere around that, like a little over 80 minutes. Yeah, this one this one's over an hour and a half. It's like an hour hour 45 or something. I was kind of surprised by that. So, this is going to be available on Means TV on uh the 14th. So, so Tuesday. Tuesday. I don't I don't know what like how Means TV works if you have to have a subscription to to watch this or if you can do like if you can just rent it from there i don't know i'm not sure either say if they have like a i mean either just get means tv if you want you can do that or i'm sure they got some sort of like um what's the thing trial the first month yeah trial trial uh trial subscribe how do you subscribe it's like 10 10 10 bucks a month Okay. When it first came out, uh, they gave us a, a subscription when they first launched this. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so I checked it out um, way back in the day, and uh, it was pretty good. There's some good stuff on there. Like they have a lot of like news shows and documentaries and things, uh, but they were also the publisher of the Tux and Fanny game. Ah, oh, okay. And I think that they have the first Tux and Fanny on there. In their catalog as well. There you go. They also have Dark Days and Buzzard. Buzzard. Yep, there's Tux and Fanny. They got the winds that scatter. Nice. Yeah, so they have some good they have some good stuff. They're like uh, you know, they're like a more anti capitalist version of Vice. Yeah, I think they're actually a worker owned. Yes. Yeah, right there on the front page, the world's first worker-owned streaming service. There you go. Yeah, so they're they're, they're doing some cool stuff. Check them out. Eyeballs in the Darkness. Get it. Uh, Let's go ahead and give it a score. What are you going to give Eyeballs in the Darkness? Uh, I'm biased. So, like, I feel like I want to just go straight straight to the top, but I can't. (laughs) I can't do that. Internally, that's what it is, just to let you know, if you want to peek inside the brain there. But I go, like, a... I go with an eight, eight and a half. Nice. I'm sitting at uh, I'm sitting at eight on this one. Definitely recommend it. Uh, if you are not familiar with Tux and Fanny, I'm sure that you could probably watch some of the shorts like for free online. And if and if they seem like yeah. they're your jam, then I would recommend the first movie first because yeah. this one does sort of pick up where the first one left off. Yeah, you got to do it. Yeah. Also, also just the vibe of this one is different and I but I feel like you will appreciate it more if you know all of the stuff that came before it, like all their other, you know, misadventures and everything. Yeah. I agree. Cool. Uh let's move on talk about some of what we've been watching. I think it's your turn this week, Kevin. Ooh. I just watched a nature documentary called Ooh. The Velvet Queen from 2021. This is on the Criterion channel, if you have that. Um, this is a world-renowned 
wildlife photographer, uh, Vincent Mounier, he goes to Tibet and he's trying to get um, trying to get some pictures of this snow leopard. And for the most part, it's about that, and it's about like his process, like him going into like the Tibetan plateau. And he, the only the only issue to get it out of the way is that like a, a friend of his, this like novelist, goes along with him, and this guy just irritated me because he had to like he did like the voiceover and like the narration and stuff and he was you could tell he's trying out his writing shit mm. and it just annoyed me because it's another one of those guys that like oh man i wasn't really experiencing the world around me and it's like dude you're like 50 you're just now fucking realizing that there's other <laughs> shit in the world besides you jesus but anyways like cut that thing out cut him out right this is probably like one of the greatest nature documentaries I've ever seen. Like all the footage is just absolutely unreal. Mm. Just unreal. Just insane beauty. And it, it's kind of like his progress there or his process is he's kind of like mapping out the area, the photographer, you know, the guy that knows what he's doing and he's mapping it out and he's like, okay, we're going to go up here. This is like the perfect place to set up a blind and, they get up there and once they get set up, you know, the camera kind of gives you what their view is. And it's like, holy shit, this guy is just like, like an expert at finding like the exact right spot to be. Cause every time they would show you like what their view was, it was incredible. Nice. And if you just want to see the Tibetan landscape, like, I don't think any, I don't think there's anything that exists that's better than this. Hmm. Okay. I'll have to add this to my list. Then the velvet queen. Check it out on Criterion. Uh, let's see. I saw dot com for murder. Oh yeah. This is directed by Nico Mastorkis. Uh, this is a this is from two thousand two, but it feels very much like a nineties movie. I something tells me this was probably like shot in the nineties, late nineties, but maybe took a while to come out or something at any rate. Uh, it's about a woman who lives in this like kind of high tech house. Like her husband is pretty wealthy and she's in a wheelchair because she broke her leg. So she's in a cast has a kind of some rear window vibes. I think they even mentioned rear window in the movie and she goes into this chat room. She's and she's chatting it up. And it turns out that there's a, a serial killer in the chat room and he ends up live streaming a murder and sending the live stream to her. And then he decides to go after her. So it's a deadly no. game of cat and mouse involving the internet. No. Yeah. It's, um, it's ridiculous, but at the same time, some of the technology that, was clearly science fiction in this movie is that actually real now. So in that regard, it was kind of interesting to watch. Otherwise it feels like one of those super low budget, like shot in LA felt like almost like a, like a soft core porn, like just the look of it, not like the content, yeah. but the, yeah. It, so not very good, but you know, kind of one of those, so bad it's good type of movies dot com for murder this just got a like a blu-ray release so i know what i'll do 
goddamn page. I'm trying to look it up and it's not not showing up on Letterbox. Which dot com for murder? Yeah. It's really hard to find because of the whole uh, gee, dot okay. com thing. Yep. Yep. That'll get you. Yeah, because we all know Letterbox's uh search is one of the worst. It's very temperamental, yes. 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 Turns out I saw four of this director's movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see who this is. He did Island of Death, Zero Boys, The Wind. He did uh, Nightmare at Noon, which is on my watch list. I haven't watched it yet. Ninja Academy. Ninja Academy. Hell yeah, Ninja Academy. Ah, in the cold of the night. Yeah, I had a feeling. Like, I just saw this guy... You know, and I'm looking at the the posters here, and I'm like, these are all on Tubi, I bet you. Oh, guaranteed, yeah. I bet they're all. I bet every single one of them is on Tubi. Every single one's got to be, man. Ah, not Nightmare at Noon, though. Glitches. Check out Glitch. Glitches on Tubi? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Does Death Have Blue Eyes? Is that on Tubi? Oh, it's on Arrow. Okay. Interesting. Keep that in mind. So, yeah, we can go from uh, .com for murder, 20, 2002. We'll go to Grand Hotel from 1932. Whoa, that's a, that is a, tr- a, a time travel right there. That's time travel. That's not happening on any other podcast. Nope. I can tell you that. So, this is uh, Edmund Golden, 1932 Grand Hotel. This is on HBO Max. This is a uh, big, um, big old ensemble cast. You got Greta Garbo. John Barrymore, Joan Crawford, Lionel Barrymore. And it's all taking place in this like really upscale Berlin hotel, the Grand Hotel. So you get all these different uh, people staying at the Grand Hotel. So it just kind of cuts in between their stories. And of course, their stories are intersect and overlap. And there's there's intrigue. There's there's scandal. There's a murder. Someone's murdered. And it's just fun. Like, I just like these types of movies. I like a, like one setting, you know, ensemble cast. Yeah. And you just weave between them. Yep. And it's great. I just love it. And another thing about this is, like, the way in which they shoot the hotel lobby, they shoot it from, like, up high. Like, they're almost on, like, the second or third floor, like, at an angle, like, looking down onto the lobby. And I think it's like one of the first scenes. It's kind of like a long take of like everyone coming into the hotel and like someone goes off to the left and one of the new characters is coming from the left to the right. So the camera switches off to them. And it's just like everything that they did in the lobby. I just absolutely loved it. Just had a lot of fun with this movie. Yeah, I love movies that take place in hotels or high rises. Anything like that. I I just. Even uh, even like cruise liners, like ships, big ships, anything. Just get a bunch of people in one place and cut between them. Let's do it. Space stations, yeah, love it. Uh, let's see. I saw Homewrecker from 1992. Mm. Yeah, this one is uh, directed by Fred Walton. And uh, this, the tagline on this one is, it cooks, it cleans, it kills. Ah, uh, you don't want it to do the last thing. No. No, cooking and cleaning is fine. Killing, mm, not, not great. 
This it's one, a, I, don't, I don't know if you remember. There was an episode of Futurama where Bender got into a relationship with the Planet Express ship and then he like cheated on her and, and broke up with her and mm, the ship mm-hmm. got really angry. And th- that's what this whole movie reminded me of for some reason. The Planet Express ship episode of Futurama where you have this like computer scientist and he invents this AI and at first he's like working on it with the government and it goes horribly wrong and it ends up killing some people and he kind of goes he goes cuckoo he goes a little batty from that just the 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 guilt the overwhelming guilt that he has so he ends mm-hmm. up in an institution and like several years later he gets out and he decides, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix the AI, whatever. So he leaves his wife and kid uh to stay in in their like vacation cabin. So as soon as he gets out, he's like right back to work. He doesn't spend time with his family. He goes right to work and he thinks that he fixes the AI and turns it into like a more home like consumer product where it's you know like Siri or one of those like Google Home or Alexa mm-hmm. and um it, it it gains sentience it gets really smart and then it builds itself arms like it yeah. it figures out how to create uh you know arms for itself so then it it like makes these like tracks throughout the house that the arms can like move on and uh then it gets very jealous of his wife. So the, so the guy's wife comes back into the picture and they're, they're, they're slowly mending their relationship, but the AI starts to get very jealous and tries to kill the wife and things kind of escalate from there. It's a, it's It's not a good movie, but it's, it's kind of fun, especially to see the, the version of future tech from 1992 because they weren't super far off with what they were doing in this movie. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, the AI in this movie is kind of dumber than what we're seeing with like chat GPT and stuff now. So I give it a light recommend home wrecker. It's not a good, not, not a particularly good movie, but it's entertaining. Nonetheless. Incredible. That's all I have. And I can't, I can't follow up home wrecker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to follow up home record. I have one more that I can mention. That's the boogeyman from 1980. This is directed by Yuli Lommel. Um, this is a eighties supernatural horror movie that it's kind of, it kind of throws in the kitchen sink when it comes to what this is about. It, it starts off as seeming like sort of a slasher in, in a way. Like the movie opens very similarly to how, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween opens, but then like deviates from that. And you have, so basically there's, there's this, uh, these two young kids and they're spying on their mom, uh, about to have sex with her boyfriend and they get caught. And the, the guy, the boyfriend ties the, the, the kid up one of one of the kids. So there's an older boy and a younger girl 
ties the kid to the bed and like beats him up and gags him. And then he goes back to like making love with the, this kid's mom. Well, the sister, she grabs a knife, cuts the kid loose. The kid takes the knife and kills the boyfriend with it. And then we jump ahead, uh, like, I don't know, 20 years into the future. And these two people are like traumatized by the, that whole event when they were kids, the, the boy, uh, he doesn't talk at all. Uh, so he's like severely, you know, has PTSD. And then the, the, the girl, the woman, she has these like horrible night terrors from it. And, uh, they get a letter from their mom saying that she's sick and she's about to die. She wants to see them. And this like triggers all of these horrible memories and stuff. And they, they begin to backslide. So then they like go to the house that they grew up in to try to like confront the, this past trauma. And it turns out that the dead boyfriend is living inside of a mirror that's in the house. And the girl, the, the daughter sees sees him in the mirror and she like freaks out and shatters the mirror and in doing so it sort of releases him mm. but he's still kind of in the mirror it's it's really weird how it works uh where he's like in the mirror but he can like come out of the mirror to kill people but like that the mirror still has to like the reflection of the mirror still has to kind of be pointed at you uh, but because it's in pieces, the shards like get tracked everywhere. And so he's able to, to pop out of the different shards and kill people. And then at the mm-hmm. end of the, at the end of the movie, one of the shards goes into the girl's eye and she gets possessed by the guy. Oh no. It's goofy. It's really goofy. Uh, there are a couple kind of interesting kills in it. There's one kill where uh, there's like a like a barbecue or a, like a shish kebab skewer or something goes through a gu- the back of a guy's head and out his mouth, and then uh, the the ghost of the killer. Uh, there's a woman who goes to check on him and she opens the car door. This is in a car, and the ghost hits her with the car door and it forces her into the skewer. So it looks like the two are making out, but in reality, they're like stuck together with the skewer. Wow. Yeah. So there's some kind of, there's some kind of clever kills in there. Overall, it's uh, it's just, it's not very good. I started watching the sequel too. And the sequel is unfortunately one of those, movies where it's basically they just replay the first movie and it's all in flashback and I hate those because like mm. they shouldn't exist mm. yeah I'm not a fan of those I hear you there's not that many but yeah no. there have been there have been it's always there's the eight, it's many. the 80s 80s ones that do that do that where they had the gall to essentially repackage the first movie and play it out like it was the original or like an, an actual sequel anyway that's the boogeyman from 1980 there's a third one in the series too but I heard that that one's even worse than the second one so I'll probably be skipping that I think I'll probably watch the first one the first one's worth worth a look you know if you're if you're in the market for like an 80s kind of kind of slasher movie Always, but but with the def, there's definitely a supernatural twist 
to it that's kind of goofy. Uh, all right, let's talk about some of what we have in theaters. The big one is Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Oh, boy. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that's a thing. I saw a trailer for this one. The trailer gives a lot away. Pretty much the whole movie, really. Uh, but it also doesn't make the movie look good. So, yeah, not I'm not too excited about this one. I really liked the first Ant-Man. Like it was, it was fun. It was a really fun one, and it, it brought like a lot of comedy into the Marvel universe at the time. And it was just, it was, it was really good. And then the second one was just so forgettable, pretty much like every other Marvel movie, really. Yes, seems that way. Uh, we also have Winnie the Pooh: Blood and Honey coming out. <laughs> there you go. That is that is literally coming to theaters. In a that wide release. All right, Dan. I can't believe that. Like, I saw a trailer for this, and, like, it's not even, like, it doesn't even look like it's a well-made horror movie. It looks like one of those, like, straight-to-streaming, like, $5 budget-type movies that you just see that, that are, like, super generic and somehow, somehow, against all odds, it's in theaters. So ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's the Winnie the Pooh name, but still, God. Uh, on VOD this week, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have enough time to update the calendar, so there's only three that I know of. Uh, the first is Unlocked, which is going to be on Netflix on the 17th. This is a thriller looks decent uh it's about a young woman who has her her whole life hacked after her she loses her phone no so yep looks decent um and then we have swallowed this is a a a horror thriller and then tux and fanny 2 which is going to be on means tv Means TV. On Blu-ray this week, we have The Fablemans. We got Decision to Leave. We have Strange World. That's the Disney animated one that they just quietly (laughs) released with no marketing behind it from what I could tell. Yeah, that was bizarre. I'm guessing it was bad, but yeah. Uh, looks like there's a Truffaut collection coming out. Oh. Uh, the Bride Wore Black from 1968. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Dark Glasses. That's on Shudder. That's the uh, Argento one, the new Argento one, which is pretty decent. Um, let's see what else we have here. Looks like there is Arrow is putting out another Giallo Essentials collection. This is 1971 to 1975. Let's see if I can figure out what titles it includes. The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, and The Suspicious Death of a Miner. So three titles there. Nice. I think I saw a couple of those. 
they all kind of bleed together. Uh, we have a double pack of Body Girls and Let's Get Physical. That looks like a vinegar syndrome. Uh, Lust for Blood from 2010. Dear Zoe. Um, um, let's see. Deadly Lust from 2018. Christmas with the Campbells. House Party. That's the new one that just hit theaters like a couple weeks ago. Just came out. Yep. And I think that it's on VOD right now. And Three Days of the Condor from 1975. What about Criterion's? Uh, we have a, it seems like a bad decision on their part. We got Romeo Juliet. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I wanted to talk about this cause I saw this on the list. What are, what were they thinking with this? Like really? I don't know. I don't know. Cause the stars of this movie are currently suing Paramount for like $500 million. Yeah. This, and this just happened like, like a month ago or something. It was very recent. That, the, yeah. that they filed this lawsuit because they were f- there were nude scenes with them, specifically one nude scene with them in that movie, and they were underage and they didn't consent to it. Yes. So yes, maybe maybe that's not a good idea, Criterion. Maybe maybe I, maybe you should have held that one back. And I, I feel like that's such an easy decision to make because I don't think people are really clamoring for Zeffirelli's at Romeo and Juliet. Like you could have just kept your hands off of it, you know, and just avoided anything. Yeah, it's really yeah. weird. It's a really weird decision on their part. Yeah, don't buy that. It's fucked up. Mm-hmm. Was that it? That's it. Just one terrible decision. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can send us your questions and topics to podcastfilmpulse.net. You can follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net and at filmpulsekevin. And if you have a moment, consider reviewing us on iTunes. That'd be great. For Kevin Rakestraw, my name's Adam Patterson. We'll see you next week. <laughs>